Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So typically we explore unsolved homicides on this podcast, but today we're going to talk about a missing person case. 24 years ago, Felicia Johnson, a 21-year-old mother of two, vanished. When she first disappeared, no one was too concerned. You see, for years, Felicia, known as Fifi to friends and family, was hooked on crack cocaine, a cheap and easy to find drug that unloaded a fast and euphoric high. And as a result, Felicia would often drop out of sight, but she would always call someone in the family, let them know she was okay. Her mother and father, Robert and Molly Johnson, were raising their daughter's two children, including a newborn girl. Now, Felicia wasn't alone in her addiction to crack. During the nation's crack epidemic of the 1980s and early 90s, its net had ensnared an untold number of youth growing up in inner city neighborhoods. On the street in East Fort Worth where Felicia's family lived, two other grandmothers were also raising their grandkids at that time because their own daughters were crack addicts. Bob Ray Sanders, a longtime journalist who worked more than 40 years in radio, television, and newspapers, was born and raised in Fort Worth, growing up on the city's east side. He witnessed firsthand the devastation that crack cocaine unleashed in his and other minority communities, taking a hold on young people like no other drug he'd seen before. When crack cocaine hit, you had kids, I mean, little kids, uh, adolescents who were becoming addicted to these drugs and who would do almost anything to get them. And even though it was the cheapest drug probably that you could find, still you had to have the money to get it. So, I mean, so these drugs were causing people to commit crimes in other ways besides just illegal drug use and drug sales. It became very violent. It was during this time when President Reagan launched his war on drugs which led to overloaded court dockets and a huge increase in prison populations, especially for young black men. Gangs, their members getting younger and younger, often ran the crack trade, not so much as a source of income, but rather power. Crack cocaine was a kingmaker on the streets. I mean, if you controlled a certain few blocks or a neighborhood that you control the drugs in, you, you were the boss, you were the power. And so you had these warring factors even within communities to a great degree, but certainly inter-communities. I mean, the North side versus the South side, uh, the blacks versus the Hispanics. You had all of that going on. And of course, the violence that came along with it. I mean, our murder rate rose as a result of, of that drug. In fact, between 1985 and 1995, Fort Worth would average 138.5 murders each year. Sanders said many believed at that time that law enforcement wasn't doing enough to combat the drug problem, mostly because it had not yet infiltrated the white communities. He remembers doing a news piece while with KERA Channel 13, in which he walked down Evans Avenue, the same street that Felicia was known to stay on around the time she disappeared. And I actually pointed out drug houses. Uh, I actually went and bought some drugs. I had a guy on camera doing drugs, right, you know, in an apartment complex, right on Evans Avenue. And, and my point in that, in that piece that I did for Channel 13 was that 
if I can find out in two days where the drug houses are on this street, why can't the police? Sanders said the news story also was intended to serve as a warning to the white communities that crack cocaine was headed their way. When there's a fire in the kitchen and people are yelling fire, and you're in the living room watching television and all you can say is change the channel while you're up, the drugs are going to come. Just a few years later, those same drugs or, or kinds of drugs would be hitting Plano and, you know, suburban Dallas neighborhoods, and suddenly we were so ashamed. Okay. Yeah, but we were yelling fire five and six and ten years ago, and there was no issue. Now the fire has gotten to the living room, gotten to white America, and suddenly everybody's alarmed. Crack cocaine would forever alter the Johnson family, turning Felicia from a straight-A honor student at Dunbar High School who loved math to a high school dropout who became pregnant at age 16. And Molly Johnson said she didn't immediately see the signs that her daughter was taking drugs. I mean, Felicia was her firstborn. She was the apple of her mother's eye. And for five years, she ruled the roost as the only child. When her sister Tawana came along, Felicia took on the role of big sister very seriously. The girls were extremely close. And Tawana was often dependent on Felicia because of their parents' busy work schedules. Molly's husband, Robert, worked days at a retirement center. When he'd be arriving home, Molly would be headed out to work the second shift at Bell Helicopter. My mom worked, you know, a lot. So when she'd get up in the morning, my sister was the one to make sure I was looking neat before I would go to school and hair combed and, you know, making sure her sister was okay. She took care of me, you know, that was my big sister. Regardless of what she did, that was my big sister. And she would take care of me no matter what. They were so close that Tawana, despite having her own room, was still sleeping in her big sister's bed in the seventh grade. They shared secrets, so it's really no surprise that it was Tawana who would be the first one in the family to know that Felicia, at age 15, had started experimenting with drugs. She started what you call pre-mowing, where you put the crack in the weed. And I'll never forget, she told my girl named T, um, introduced her to it. And um, it went from doing that to full base on um, with just the rock with the pipe. Molly Johnson says it might have been her work hours or simply denial that kept her from seeing what was happening. She was just a good kid. I mean, somebody that you would be proud of, you know. And, and as a, in high school, she never got in trouble. Like I said, she was a straight A student, and who would ever thought that? That detour was coming in our life. We never expected that, you know, because it wasn't something that she was raised around, you know? Tawana said the drugs took quick control of her sister. She remembers frequently watching her sister smoke crack in the bathroom. She would always tell me, sis, don't ever do this. That was, she would always tell me, don't ever, don't ever let nobody talk you into doing this. She said it was like a wolf calling in the middle of the night, even when she don't want to do it. She said be just calling her. After giving birth to her son, Cordell, just a month before she turned 17, Felicia tried to get clean. She and her son's father moved into an apartment together, but crack followed her every step like a dark cloud. Molly soon became concerned that her grandson wasn't being properly cared for. I mean, Cordell cried all the time as an infant. Later, he didn't seem to talk a lot, content just to sit in a room and play with pencils. 
She worried he wasn't being fed enough and finally decided that she and her husband would take matters into their own hands and bring that baby home. I just wanted to make sure. I just didn't take any chances. You know, because if something happened and that was always in the back of my mind that you should have went got him, I wouldn't have been able to live with that. So I just, my instincts just kicked in. Grandma then go get that baby. And that's what me and my husband did. There would be two more pregnancies for Felicia. One ended in the birth of a deformed, stillborn baby boy. She'd have a daughter, Ariana. Tess would reveal that Ariana, a preemie who spent her first two months of life in intensive care, was born with a crack cocaine addiction. Now, it was only after Ariana's birth that Molly realized Cordell had likely also been born crack addicted five years earlier. When Cordell was born, we had no clue until she was born. That's when I figured it out. Because she was born crack cocaine addicted in the same symptoms that she had. Cordell was going through him, and I had no clue. He was fed, dried, I mean, not wet, no poop was on him, he was just whining. And they didn't do it in 88, they didn't do a lot of, when you had a baby, they didn't do a lot of testing for it. Now when you have, if they have any clue that you're on drugs, they do testings on all babies. Child Protective Services was notified, but once again, Molly stepped in to make sure those kids stayed with her. Here I go again, intervening. She came home with me. Yeah, because yeah. so there was no need to the state, right, Mom? You know, they they were going to water to the state, but she came home with me. So there was no need to get CPS involved. And I raised her, and I, she had no clue that I was not her mom until this one. <laughs> I was 12. <laughs> Opened his mouth. Cordell? Cordell, it turns out, had spilled the beans to Ariana when she was 12, after he'd been spanked for getting in trouble, and his little sister butted in. And he told her, you be quiet, that ain't your mama no way. So they can laugh about it now, but back then, the revelation was obviously pretty shocking to Ariana. She was confused. For years, she'd seen that framed photograph on her home's wall of her little brother, then toddler, sitting on the lap of a woman alongside his aunt Tawana. She'd always assumed that other woman was maybe a cousin she'd never met, but now that was her mother. I mean, can you imagine? Still, it would be a few more years before Ariana really started to question what happened to her mom. It is a question that 24 years after Felicia's disappearance still can't be answered. So Felicia had tried rehab more than once. Molly remembers one 30-day rehab stint in Argyle, Texas. Molly had gone to spend a week with her daughter as part of the treatment. She remembers how they had to sit down with a counselor and write down and then say aloud the things that each other did that made them angry. She also remembers the word of warning that the counselor asked her to pass along to any children that Felicia might have. If they were born addicted, he cautioned, even drinking could potentially trigger them into trying harder drugs because alcohol alone may not satisfy them. I'm glad I did that for them because I didn't want them to be lost in the shuffle behind something that their mother forced on them. They didn't have a choice. Molly remembers being so proud when her daughter emerged from rehab, sober and beautiful. But she wouldn't stay clean for long. They manipulate you really good to her ass. 
you convinced that everything is okay and it's not. And I don't know if because you're in denial, uh, they just know how to work around you because of the love that you have for them. But it wasn't right away. It was, it was a minute before I figured it out. So it wasn't unusual for Felicia to disappear for days at a time when the crack cocaine took back over. But remember, every time she'd leave, she'd always check in with somebody, maybe with her grandparents or even a family friend through church, telling them that she was all right and asking them to let her mama know. Soon she'd show up at the home or at the house of her grandparents to raid the icebox for food, get some sleep. Her grandmother, Jolene Thompson, says her firstborn granddaughter would come by late at night, take a bath, and get some sleep before waking up the next morning at 6 o'clock heading back out the door. She didn't even hide her intentions. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going back and get some, my medicine is what she called. I said, you coming back? She said, I don't know. So if you know a drug addict, you also know that they will do anything to get more. Tarrant County court records show beginning in 1989, Felicia began to stack up theft convictions ending in first 18 days in jail and later six months. In 1992, she was convicted of misdemeanor prostitution. Molly Johnson thought she had lost three wedding ring sets before she realized that it was Felicia who was stealing them. We stopped buying wedding rings. Yeah. We just quit. You think she was taking them and, yes. and yeah, selling just, them? Yes. Yeah, stopped. Now, the exact date when the family last had contact with Felicia is a little fuzzy. Molly recalls it was January 1994 when she last laid eyes on her daughter. That day, Tawana says Felicia had gotten high again. We were right there in that restaurant, and um, she bought a matchbox full of crack, and she was just in the restaurant just smoking, and I said, Sis, won't you take that back to whoever you got it from, and just take it back, because you're not going to do nothing but smoke it up. And from that day, I don't think we have ever heard from my sister since that day. Molly remembers how Felicia pretended she was going to go get a blouse out of her mother's closet. In reality, she soon realized Felicia had stolen Molly's pistol out of the closet, just another item to sell in exchange for crack. It didn't click on me until she left. Molly says she and Tawana ran to the door in time to see Felicia getting into a red car that then sped off. They had no clue she wouldn't be returning this time. When the phone calls later stopped, the family grew concerned. Robert filed a missing person report on April 11th of that year. He told officers that no one had heard from his daughter in approximately four weeks. Molly thinks it was even before that. And what we do know is that as of February 3rd, 1994, Felicia was still alive. How do we know? Because Fort Worth police officers had contact with her that day. According to a report, that afternoon officers pulled over a pickup on East Mulkey Street, occupied by two men and Felicia. The pickup had been reported stolen out of Euless. The driver was arrested, but Felicia was not, and instead was listed only as a suspect in the report. She and the other passenger were released at the scene. Now since that time, neither police here nor anywhere in the country have had contact with Felicia. For years, her case was worked by missing persons investigator J.D. Tywater. Reports show he searched area law enforcement records in Tarrant County Jail for Felicia. In November 1994, Molly went in person to the police department to fill out a missing person affidavit on her firstborn. 
It's a more extensive report that provides police the details that could one day lead to her identification should a body be found. Details like how Felicia had a partial plate for her two upper front teeth and a cesarean scar that ran vertical on her stomach. How when she gave birth to Ariana in October 1993, doctors had warned her she was in danger of having a heart attack because her drug use had damaged her heart lining. So with the discovery of unidentified remains both near and far, it always brought up questions whether Felicia had finally been found. In December of 94, Tywater sent Felicia's fingerprints to the Arkansas State Crime Lab after an unidentified deceased woman was found there. They weren't a match. In January 1995, skeleton remains of a black female found in a field off East Magnolia Avenue in Fort Worth seemed promising, but were later identified as belonging to a 32-year-old woman. The detective even questioned a woman that he and a colleague observed standing on a downtown street in March 1995 after noticing she resembled Felicia. She was even holding a Tarrant County Jail property bag, the name Rochelle Johnson printed on the outside. Felicia's middle name is Rochelle. Maybe she was using a similar name as an alias? The woman denied she was Felicia, but Tywater still looked into her criminal history to confirm that she simply wasn't lying. She was telling the truth. So tips regarding Felicia's whereabouts bubbled up periodically to her family. In April 95, Molly alerted Tywater to a rumor she'd been told that Felicia was living in a halfway house in New Orleans off Canal Street. Tywater ran a national check on Felicia. Perhaps she'd been in prison since his last check, but nothing came back. And while the family desperately searched for Felicia, another tragedy was unfolding for the Johnsons. Robert's health was failing him. He dropped considerable weight. He was let go from his job at a retirement center while healing from hernia surgery. He was found to have a heart problem. Depressed, Robert experimented with the same drug that his daughter had fallen victim to. I was the first one to see my daddy smoke crack. And I was the one that told my mom and my family, you know, that daddy was smoking crack. Yeah, you can go through this, this garage, and my mom used to have these mirrors. And I was going out to the garage, and I seen this poof of smoke. And I know how it looked, you know, for being around my sister. So I know the difference from the smoke and what it, how it looked. So I was like, what the hell? And, you know, I was mad at my daddy. And he didn't know why because, you know, I was a daddy's girl. And he was like, what is going on? What, what, what? And I just could not tell him what I saw until it was just built up. And I finally told it. Molly Johnson was at first in disbelief. But eventually she confronted her husband, who acknowledged it was true. Not to. No, I'm not believing it's not to. Not in my family, you know. And I probably said a lot of choice words to him. I probably went up one side and down the other, you know, because our daughter's missing. Now you, you gonna do this? Though he would keep his promise to his family to stop the drug use, Robert's health continued to decline. On May 6, 1995, he died from congestive heart failure at age 48. Desperate to find Felicia before her father's funeral, the family reached out to Bob Ray Sanders, then a columnist with the Star-Telegram. I was told that Molly's daughter had been missing, and they can't find her. They didn't know what had happened. They didn't know if she'd run away from home. They didn't know if uh, she had been murdered. What, they, they were just looking for her. And they asked me if I could help in some way. I said, well, I may be able to tell the story. 
So Bob Ray met with Molly, who bared her soul to him. She told him everything about Felicia's drug addiction, how her daughter's children had been born crack cocaine addicted, even about her husband's brief experiment with the drug. Her openness was incredible. I mean, many people who have a loved one addicted to drugs don't want to talk about it. It's painful. It can be embarrassing, even though it shouldn't be. But here is Molly just putting it all out there for everyone to see. But I asked him very clearly before I wrote it, and even after I wrote it, I didn't share the comment. I said, are you sure you want me to tell the story the way I can tell it? And they said, yes. And so I wrote it as an open letter to Felicia. Here is how it started. This is an urgent message for 22-year-old Felicia Johnson. Your children and your mother need you. Please call home. You know your parents were worried sick when you left home in January 1994. I'm told that it wasn't unusual, but always before, when you'd leave, you'd at least call some family member. But not this time. They need to hear from you. Bob Ray wrote about visiting that week with Ariana, who was only three months old when her mother left. Cordell, he wrote, was at school, but family said he's doing fine. He wrote how her parents had hoped that Felicia would have returned in October 94 when Ariana had her first birthday party. How Molly and Robert Johnson had had high hopes for her when she was an honor student at Dunbar, but had accepted the reality of her drug addiction and were being good parents to her children. Remember all those lectures from your dad about drugs while you were in and out of treatment programs? He tried his best to help you. Your mom says he was a great father and never stopped loving you. But Robert's health had been failing, Bob Ray wrote in his column to Felicia. He'd taken to using crack cocaine himself and that things have only continued to go downhill. He ended the column simple but direct. Your father died of a mass heart attack last Saturday morning and they can't wait any longer to hold the funeral. It will be this Saturday at 1 p.m. That Saturday, the anticipation was high inside Corinth Missionary Baptist Church for Robert's funeral. We was like waiting. Everybody was like waiting to see if she was going to come through the church. She can show up for the wake. So we were just waiting. We just knew she was going to walk through the door. Bob Ray was among those who packed the church that day. I think there were a lot of us expecting that maybe, you know, like an imitation of life, the film, you know, the, the... Wayward daughter comes running home, you know, falling over the casket of, of, of a fallen family member. It didn't happen. It was then, at her father's funeral, that hope began to dwindle that Felicia was even alive. So through the years, information has filtered into the family about what might have happened to Felicia. They've heard that she was killed by two members of the Truman Street Bloods including a man she'd previously dated, over the belief that she'd taken crack from them and given it to a crip gangster. They've also heard she was buried in the backyard of the home. One name has repeatedly surfaced as a possible suspect, family members say, and they've passed along that information to investigators. But they're frustrated. They say they're frustrated that not enough is being done by police, the state, or even the nation to find Felicia and other adult missing persons, regardless of the reasons why. Felicia wasn't just some drug addict, they say. She was full of life, and she was loved. 
While Tywater had kept his promise to call Molly Johnson every three months, even if it was just to tell her that there was nothing new to report, since his retirement, they say, the case has just been passed from one investigator to another. They don't feel like anyone's followed up on their information. And with every new call they make to police, they get a new investigator on the line, feeling as if they're having to start over from square one. Now, Fort Worth Police's missing person unit is made up of two officers and a civilian, and they handle upwards of 300 missing person cases a month. On average, a supervisor tells me, they have 50 open adult missing person cases, some dating back decades. The supervisor says each case must be reviewed at least monthly. Cold case detective L. Wagner says Felicia's case has been worked through the years by both missing persons and homicide detectives. Currently, it's in her hands. Adult missing person cases present unique challenges, she says. Everybody gets up in arms when you have a missing child because children are dependent upon us as adults to take care of them. You know, we know that if a child goes missing that, you know, bad things are afoot. When you have an adult that's missing, we have to keep in mind that some people are missing because they want to be missing. And so you're treading a fine line between actively looking for somebody that may just be gone or looking for somebody that is truly a victim of some sort of crime. But she says things have been done through the years to try to find Felicia. Felicia's information has been entered into the National Crime Information Center database, or NCIC. That means any officer anywhere in the nation who might come across her and runs her name and date of birth are going to be alerted that she's an endangered missing person out of Fort Worth. Now, to give you an idea of just how staggering the number of missing person cases is, consider this. At the end of December, there were more than 88,000 active missing person cases in NCIC. 63% of those involved persons over age 18. From Texas alone, there were just shy of 6,000 missing persons by the end of February. That number includes juveniles. Police have also entered Felicia's information into NamUs, a national online depository for missing person and unidentified remain cases. It's maintained right here at Fort Worth by the UNT Health Science Center, Center for Human Identification. Now, currently, there are more than 14,000 open missing person cases in NamUs, including almost 1,100 from Texas alone. What's shocking to me is that while there are states who have passed laws requiring law enforcement to enter missing person records into NamUs, Texas is not one of them. Here it is maintained in our own backyard, and yet we haven't passed such a law. Now this database is searchable by both law enforcement and the public, and it compares missing person cases to unidentified human remains found. Police's information is in there, and it includes dental records and even DNA samples provided by her mother and daughter. But despite all this, there's still been no sign of her. With each year that's ticked by, investigators believe that foul play is likely behind Felicia's disappearance. Nobody, nobody has heard from her as far as we know in the last 24 years. So I say that being murdered is, is probably what did happen to her. It's just, it's the only logical conclusion that anybody can come to at this point. Wagner says through the years, police records show investigators have looked into the names provided by family members. They reached out to the man whose name has repeatedly surfaced to family members, but so far he's refused to talk to police. They found no evidence or witness information corroborating that he was involved, 
leaving them unable to get search warrants that might aid them. People don't understand so we can't just go in a backyard and start digging. You know, we can't take a dog out there and just start sniffing around. You have the right to protect your property, you know. And if we don't get cooperation from some of these people, you know, we're hitting that wall again. Molly says people used to ask her all the time. What would she do if Felicia suddenly reappeared? I'd say she would be the prodigal daughter. I'd leave Bell Helicopter in New York Minute. Tell everybody to get together. I'm going to the store. We're getting some barbecue. We, we're about to have a party. My daughter's home. We're going to say, I'm going to whoop ass afterwards for putting that paint on me. But right now, we're going to have a party, you know? But it never happened. Instead, in 2001, Molly had her daughter declared legally dead. I did that because after seven years, I just felt like in my heart, she's dead. She's, she's not here. Because if she was, Felicia would have found her way home. Mm-hmm. With this she, girl, with this daughter. With these kids, she would have found her way home. Ariana, only months old when her mother disappeared, will turn 25 this year. She's got a good job with the Department of Justice and is currently in college. She's the spitting image of her mother and is sometimes called Fifi by distant relatives who see her and mistake her for her mother. But she's not a single photograph taken with her mother. She knows Felicia only through her family's stories. But like her mother and aunt, she too longs for some answer to her mother's whereabouts. It's just more so I want closure for for them because I never had a relationship with her. As a young child, Cordell included his mother's name on his Christmas wish list for Santa. Now, he will be 30, is in a serious relationship, and works as a security guard. He says he was blessed to have his grandmother, whom he's always referred to as his mama, raise him. He admits he has no memories of Felicia. Yeah, that's what I was trying to tell you know, my grandmother. I, I really don't remember much. I know it hurt her too, boy, but I really, I don't remember much. It does hurt Molly because it makes her question whether she did more harm than good when she and her husband took Cordell from Felicia to raise themselves. It's just one of the many what ifs with which she still wrestles. I thought Cordell would at least remember his smell, his smile. The way, not. the way he, the, maybe the way she hugged him so tight, uh, just something. Because I couldn't believe that even at five. And again, I guess I could because I intervened. I was trauma though. You, you know, trauma because like of that. my intervention, I shouldn't have done that. I should have let that bonding occur. And then I questioned myself a lot of times about what if I, if I only did this, if I did that, if I did, if I, if I had tied it down in the bed. As the family gathered with me recently in her living room, Molly spoke of a mother's pain, how she felt like she had to wear clown faces to hide her anguish from the outside world. She even admits that she seriously contemplated suicide after the death of her husband, but was talked out of it by her older sister. And I thank God for my sister doing that too, because I was being selfish. What about these kids? You know, I was all they had. If I had taken them in, where were they gonna go? To a shelter? You know, so I'm glad she did. We made it. We're still here. If Felicia was murdered, family members would love to see the person responsible brought to justice. But more important than that, they say, is simply knowing where her remains are so that they can bring her home. But not knowing that just, people just don't know how that impacts a, a mother's heart. Yeah. You know, you just, you just don't know. and. 
I'm holding back the tears now just to know that still 25 years, I still don't know where my firstborn is. I have no clue. She could be right down the street in a shallow grave, you know? And I just don't know. It just pierces your heart so bad. If you have any information about Felicia Johnson's disappearance or whereabouts, please contact Detective L. Wagner at 817-392-4307. Thank you for listening. Check back next month for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Stephen Wilson, edited by Lee Williams, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd. 